Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&As. Looks like there's a whole bunch of questions this week, so let's just dive right in. First up are a couple of follow-ups from last week. It looks like I got Mr. Morrow's question correct regarding the v uh, BNC to VGA cable for the Tink 4K. So awesome. Uh, if you want to know what we're talking about, respectfully, just check out last week's. I don't want to waste everybody's time repeating it, but yeah. Okay, so that's uh, looks like Mr. Morrow's all set and prepared for when that's released. And Dustin also wanted to chime in, chime in and say, yeah, pipe dreams of plenty. But hey, at this time, at the time of this comment, the jackpot for the lotto is 1.25 billion. So can't help but dream. Um, yeah, you know, I never played the lotto, but I guess I probably should, right? I mean, even if I'm just a sucker and I lose a couple of bucks, just the chance at using it, winning a portion of that would be pretty cool. I could do some very fun things with 1.25 billion. And I don't mean like, ha take over the world. I mean, like, I could build some really awesome stuff for, for, for us to all buy. But yeah, cool. Thanks for following up. Steve Wells wants to know if I have any idea why plugging a composite source into their Sony 2054 QM PVM looks fine, but plugging the same source in via a composite to S video cable looks significantly better, despite the source itself being the same composite device uh, that they're using a Sega Saturn. So I'm going to guess on this, but my two guesses are settings and age. Settings are easy. It could have very well been that somebody went in and set some settings for a composite device that made it that device look better. And it saved the settings per input. Some PVMs do that, some don't. So it could vary. And this was something I ran into when I was doing the original 12 years ago, the original component versus RGB tests. And I was getting different results because the monitor was calibrated different for RGB than component. So I would have to recalibrate every time I did the shots for both. So that could, it could be as easy as that. Um, but it also could just be age because, you know, these things are well over 20 years old now. So it could just be that that composite video jack had been used over and over and over again and started to wear down. But then when you switched it to one of those cables that breaks composite video into two connections and plugged it into the S-video inputs, maybe those connectors are nice and solid. Or maybe it's the capacitors on the board to complete those circuits. Maybe one of them is leaking or has leaked and started corrosion. Um, I'm just, I'm going by the assumption that you mean the same Saturn, the same composite video cable, and you're just taking that composite video cable and switching it between the comp uh, composite input and then a, a little Y cable going to the S video input. That's just my guess, 100% of a guess, nothing else. Um, but that that could be it. So it could just be age or settings, uh, but you'd really have to dig deeper into both and you would wanna use multiple composite sources to confirm and, you know, this is definitely more of a Steve from RetroTech question, but hopefully I could at least point you in the right direction to testing yourself a little bit. But that's an interesting one. And that's something that, um, I don't know, that's an interesting one, but that's what my gut's telling me. Settings or age. On a much lighter note, Adam Stalker heard me mention previously that I have a projector that works well for retro purposes. They've watched My Life in Gaming's video, and while that covers a lot of the considerations, they're looking for one that will work well with the DEX OSSC board. What specs should they look out for when their goal would be to use the BFI feature? So, I'm not an expert in projectors, not even close, and on top of that, I don't know if I would say that the one I have is... Uh, retro focused, but I can say this, it's a BenQ projector. 
I will obviously leave a link in the description. I'll leave an affiliate link because, of course, well, you know, that's how I pay my bills. But here's a, a mini and completely honest and brutal review of this thing. First, it's an ultra short throw projector, but I keep it like six feet away. And I, I don't think it's one of those that you could only use two inches away. I think it has to be multiple feet away. But if you need to pick the correct projection screen to match. So the projection screen I bought was not the right one for an ultra short throw projector, but it works because I'm five plus feet away, maybe, maybe six, I think it's five feet away or something like that. Um, whereas if I had gotten a projection screen that is designed for ultra short throw, it would work perfectly at this distance or closer or farther away. And the one that would fit this setup correctly has been out of stock for months. And they say it's coming back in stock uh, September. T to clarify, the one that I could afford has been out of stock. You could buy a $2,500 projector screen, but that's far more expensive than the projector. So I'm trying to keep with the cheapest stuff. I think this 650 and that was a hundred bucks or something that doesn't work. It doesn't work well for this. So assuming that you have the correct screen and that you, you know, something like this would work for you. What sets this apart from other projectors is that the other ones that I've tested at least is it's a DLP projector that could do uh, 1080p up to 240 Hertz. So that means you could take any of the modern scalers coming out that could do BFI and that could do 120 hertz, like the DEX, like the RetroTINK 4K, and you could send it that lower resolution, but the higher refresh rate. And then you could get things like smooth scrolling. And the only thing I will say is that maybe it's just a result of the screen that I used, but CRT filters look terrible. It just looks like the worst geometry CRT you've ever seen because the projection screen isn't flat. It's kind of wobbly. So um, it might just be my particular screen. I'll obviously try that again, but I think it would be safe to say go into this not expecting to use uh, CRT scan line masks on a projector. And if it works for you, awesome bonus. Maybe I'm the only person that's having trouble with that, but I think it's probably better just for your own sanity to go into this not expecting to use CRT filters, but being able to do absolutely do things like um, you know, use BFI. And it is a very low latency projector. A bunch of people have tested it. The, the latency numbers match what their marketing is pretty close. And I, I just... There's, it's worked great for me. The only two, the only three complaints I have about it, their support w wasn't good at all. Um, their, their rep that I talked to was very nice and, and patient, but their actual team in Taiwan said things to me like, I, would sh I had sent them a screenshot of their projector running at a resolution and refresh rate, well, running well at a resolution and refresh rate that their documentation said it didn't support. And I, I just wanted to, to clarify, is it converting this signal? Is it just, is it displaying it as is? And their response was something like, well, that's an EDID. It's not really, it's not really receiving that signal. Y yeah, it is. That's the signal I'm sending it and it's confirming that. So yeah, you gotta, you have to understand that you're going to get basically no support. Um, 24P looks weird. So if you want to, it's not bad, but it's not the type of, like if I'm so used to 24P on an OLED uh, that, you know, that's just set to 5X so that you have smooth motion. If you don't know what that is, don't look it up because you'll never be able to unsee it, uh, at least if you're a video nerd. And I'm used to how good that looks and it looks weird on this projector. 
I've read many articles saying that projectors sometimes, even if it's properly running in 24 frames per second, like this one supposedly is, that some projectors just weren't really designed for that. So you get some weird artifacting and some weird like haloing around people's faces and stuff like that. It feels almost like motion interpolation with a filter, even though it supposedly isn't. And the 3D glasses... Uh, the knockoff ones would disconnect every two minutes, and the the ones that are their official expensive ones would disconnect every 15 minutes, and you'd have to press the button on top to resync them. Um, so those are my three complaints. You're never going to get a real answer from their a technical support team. Um, oh, there's a fourth. If you ever needed a firmware update, you have to send it back to them. That's BS, isn't it? Even though it could totally be updated from the port. So support, firmware, um, 3D looks great but I've had desync issues and 24p looks weird, but maybe that's a result of my uh, projection screen as well. Maybe once I get the correct screen, 24p will start to look good. I don't know, but I want it to be, uh, you know, especially because I posted an affiliate link to something expensive. I wanted to be blunt about all the shortcomings, but it's great as a high frame rate projector. Uh, it's very versatile and for the money, because, you know, you could spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on projectors. So for about the price of a, a mid-range OLED TV to have a 90-inch screen back there that looks mostly awesome most of the time in a dark room, of course, I think it's great and I would definitely recommend it unless you're a projector expert that wants to drop a lot of money on like a laser projector or something else. You know, In that budget for somebody who's just starting to get into it, I would think that's awesome for retro. Uh, and and did definitely work with the decks in um, BFI mode and the the Tink the Tink 4K I've been using I've been watching movies basically any movie that's not 4K I will watch through the Tink with BFI on into that projector and wow I I don't want to say anymore because I'm sure I'm gonna uh, I'm not sure if I'm gonna be able to do a, a review of it uh, just for all the reasons, but I'm definitely going to be participating in other people's at the very least. And even if I do a small one, one of the things I really want to show everybody is what BFI does to film grain. Because even on my DLP projector, which it's safe to use BFI, but you lose some color info, um, DLP projector. Did I say that right? I might have said DFI. I don't know. A lot of acronyms here. Uh, but when I turn on BFI, it makes that absolutely ugly digitally compressed film grain look like film grain it looks like you're watching a film when i have that on so uh, with minimal flicker but even when you're watching on a projector that flicker kind of makes you feel like you're watching a film projector so the fact that you mentioned projection screens and bfi if you buy something like this that could handle 120 hertz or up you're going to have a lot of really cool options coming Bunch of questions from Jason Guffey. I'm going to probably record these in sections just uh, to try to make it flow a little smoother. Uh, first, they're moving their game room to another room in their house, and the new room also needs to be repainted. So they're wondering what shade of white or light gray to use. If gaming is by far their primary focus over something like movies or television viewing, but they also have a decent amount of ambient lighting in the form of RGB strip shelf lighting, do I have any suggestions now that I'm a seasoned homeowner? Whiter and brighter seems like a good bet for bouncing more color and energy around the room, but they could also go with black paint to give the space a more dive bar feel. Thoughts? No, none, zero. Here's how it goes in my house. My wife and I talk about where we want to put things, 
I am the functional side, and she's the one that actually makes it look nice. So you saw the room tour down here. Yeah, there's a lot of metal racks and stuff that are very industrially looking, but it also somehow flowed and doesn't look like you're sitting in a warehouse. It feels like you're sitting in like a, a cool, you know, like weird, racky-vibed projection room, you know, movie theater, gaming room, whatever. And that's all my wife, 100%. Anything, I always joke about when people come over, like if you see anything and you go, oh, that looks nice, my wife did that. If you see anything like, wow, that's functional, I did that. So yeah, I, I'm sorry, I got nothing for you on that one. Second from Jason, do I have any experience with screen magnifiers? They remember using one when they were a kid with their Game Boy Color, and they thought it was the coolest thing in the world being able to mag magically enlarge the tiny LCD screen. Fast forward to now, and they wondered if the same logic could apply to smaller CRT screens, since the Pro Tubes are only getting harder and harder to come across. On a whim, they bought a cheap magnifier intended for LCD monitors off of Amazon, and was actually very pleasantly surprised with the results. They had to return it because it got damaged in shipping, but they're ordering another one to replace it. Super gimmicky, they know, and actually playing on it for long periods will likely kill their eyeballs, but they're curious if, they, if I've even heard of this suggested before. Uh, no, and I don't know why. It seems like something that might be kind of neat to try. My first guess would be in order to do it properly, you would have to have like a cone and you would have to build it exactly for the shape of the CRT that you're attaching it to. So now you have something big and deep that you're adding a lot more depth to. So that would be my number one thing. Also, what does the magnification of that do to your eyes? That's another. But also would sitting closer to it be any more of a help turning the brightness down and sitting closer cousin scott had one of the eight inch pvms up on a rack and he had a controller underneath so that whenever he had some time to kill he could just walk over to that press one button and just start gaming and he'd only he'd be standing like a foot and a half two feet away from it but that tiny little eight inch screen was now a perfectly fine gaming experience because of the way he had placed it, where he had placed it and the way he was using it. So good question. Uh, but I don't, I've never heard of anybody doing that and it seems like a fun experiment, but I'm not sure how, uh, how over long periods of time that would work. I do very clearly remember a, remember having that for my original Game Boy when I was a kid and it helped, but it was also cumbersome because you also had something else to carry, you had something else to clean that could get dirty. If light shined in from the side, it would mess with things. So I definitely remember it, but I'm wondering if it was more of a novelty than a help. But that's so long ago that I can't really comment on that. And I haven't used one since, I think. So yeah, hopefully I, I'm sorry. I, got, I Basically, that's a two minute way of saying I got nothing again. Sorry. Next, Jason wanted to know if I had any info on hacking a Nintendo Switch, and I never have hacked it, and while a few of my friends have, I've never had a discussion about it, I've never used one, I've never interacted with one, uh, and I kind of wish I did, because there's a lot of cool things that I would like to try, but I just, it's never been on my list of stuff, and while I have no problem talking about hacking older consoles... Uh, I do think for much of the reason that you can't find guides on hacking the switch, I don't want, I don't want to make that a focus because I don't want the wrong kind of negative attention shown on me. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there who will argue to the death that if I talk about using a ROM cart for a 35 year old console that I'm stealing, if that's your opinion. That's fine. But if I ended up with a, a jailbroken switch and I, there's something I find that's really awesome I want to share with people, but you have to jailbreak your switch, switch to do it, 
that kind of opens up a weird gray area. So I just never went down that road. So I got nothing for you there. I'm failing you miserably this week, Jason. Let's see what your last question is. Lastly from Jason, they've been on a quest to find a good way to retint CRTs. So here is something I have a bit of experience with. I recently picked up a different A-series BVM, uh, A20, and after getting it home and messing with it, I went, oh my God, the screen is cracked, and I didn't even notice it before I bought it. And then I looked closer, and it was not the glass that was cracked. It was the tint had a couple of deep scratches in it. Uh, so I, uh, with a couple of friends in a, a private live stream that we were just chatting, and I was like, all right, let's do it now. And I put the camera over to it. I was able to remove the tinting on the screen, and the tinting was not only tinted, but filthy. I saved it. You can kind of see it coiled up back there next to the orange thing. I saved it to eventually show people, but it was the best move I could have made on that particular monitor in this situation. So I cleaned up the glass afterwards. It was flawless. Everything was perfect on it. There might've been like a hairline scratch on the glass somewhere, but not at all noticeable. And whenever I actually sit down to game, I do it in a mostly dark room and the brightness is kind of turned down a bit and it looks, it definitely needs some more calibration because when I removed that tinting, it obviously was originally color calibrated with the tint on. So I need to recolor calibrate everything on it, but I love it the way it is. However, lots and lots of people don't. And in fact, John Linneman said that when he did it, he wasn't able to correctly color calibrate it to exact because the tubes were always designed to have that tinting on it. So I think John said that he retinted his. Andy King, uh, find him on Twitter and he's got his own wiki and stuff like that. I believe Andy showed the process for doing this as well. So I would say that if you're somebody that glare is an issue, and you want the absolute possible, best possible color calibration, I would look into what they did. Probably Andy, you know, Andy does this, John does everything while Andy's more focused on this. So he's probably the person you want to look to for what, what they did. But um, yeah, I would kind of check that out and see, because I think your average person would probably want the tint on there. And the only reason you wouldn't is if it was a situation like me, where you're playing a game and you see what looks like a crack going across the screen that was just a scratch in the tint. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm a little bit of a help to you here on this one, but that's something that I, I do think that, and I, I think Steve from RetroTech did a video on it as well, but I'd like to see some more in-depth stuff, and I would like to see somebody out there, Andy, Steve, whoever, buy a bunch of the tint that seems to work correctly for them and then just sell that. And, you know, yes, we're going to have to pay a little bit of a markup buying it from them, but wouldn't you rather buy something that you know is the right thing for a couple bucks more than buy a bunch of stuff off Amazon and take the time to do this tinting? Anybody that's ever tinted windows in a car, remember that in the 90s? Yeah, you know how annoying that could be. So you want to get the right stuff. So maybe somebody would be able to help us out with that. But anyway, at least I one out of four. I didn't fail you completely, Jason. And also, thank you very much for the kind words. I really appreciate it. Next up, Tony wanted to chime in on a couple of things from last week. First, they just wanted to remind everybody that in the context of the RetroTINK 5X's downscaling, last week, I think I said something like used 
use either the final 1.0 firmware for the downscaling or switch to the 3.0. And if you're going to use it as a dedicated downscaling device and nothing else, then I think both of those would probably be fine. But if you wanted to downscale, but also pass through 480i instead of trying to scale that, uh, if you wanted to use it not just as a downscaler, but have a whole bunch of other features, then definitely use the 3.0 firmware. So I probably should have you know, made more of a accentuation on that as well. I, I just was kind of skipping to the end in the context of either will work, just don't run on the 2.0 firmwares. But you could, all these firmware updates are free and you could go between them if you want to. So whatever is the right answer for you works. Also, Tony had a great suggestion that uh, I probably should have been thinking more down this line. If we need matrix switches to go into things like new modern scalers that are coming out, it's probably worth looking into picking up used high-end scalers that max out at 1080p 60. So I imagine if I got an 8 in 4 out or an 8 in 6 out, whatever, 1080p 60 max, an HDMI 1.4 matrix switch, I could take everything that doesn't do 4K 60 and run it through that. It would also have to be Dolby Atmos compatible, um, but that should be, should be fine, I think. And I... Then getting like a 4x2 matrix switch for the HDMI 2.0 and above stuff, so the 4K 60 and, and over, I think that might actually be the answer to HDMI switches. I think the best possible thing would be, you know, the whatever the highest HDMI that's out right now with like a, a 12 in, 6 out, you know, with arc and, and a control pass through, but that would be thousands of dollars at the moment, I think. So, Great suggestion, Tony. I'm going to kind of swing back and look into that and just see what I could do with maybe I could use two switches to accomplish everything that I would need and then kind of swing back around. Next up, Adam Adam Ant was following up on their question about the 5-volt mod to get 5-volt to the RAD2X for their Saturn. Their Model 1 Saturn didn't have the power to keep the RAD2X powered when set for component mode, and last week we discussed finding a better way to try to get that out. Since they're using the re-Saturn PSU, it has a 5-volt DC termination for powering the mode, and they used it to power a USB port for the RAD2X. So this is awesome. I'm going to show the link for anybody watching on video. If not, I'll, I'll make sure to put the link in the description here. But my, my whole thing was, instead of modding the Saturn, how can you easily get 5 volts using the same power supply. And what Adam ended up doing was making a custom 3D printed device that also kind of stuck to a USB port. So the end result is the power jack for the Saturn completely no cut at all has the DC power jack as well as a USB output so that Adam could just have a cable right from that into the Rad 2X. I thought that was such an awesome and elegant solution that has basically zero power worries. You know, running five volts from the power supply to that pin on the multi-out probably would have been fine, but do you really wanna do you really wanna go by probably or would you rather know for sure? Whereas this pulling five volts um, coming right in like that, not running it through the motherboard, but now it's the same power source that's powering it. 
I love this idea. I think it's great. And speak up if anybody knows of any reason why Adam shouldn't have done this, but I can't think of a single one. And I'm usually the one that's ultra paranoid when it comes to power stuff. So uh, great job, Adam. And thanks for sharing the pictures. And if anybody else is having this issue and is using a re-PSU, you might want to consider this because this is a very cool option. Next up, Noah is having issues with a consoleized MVS. It works perfectly through an OSSC on two different HDMI displays, but when connected to their PVM2030, either directly or through a GSCART, there seems to be a momentary sync loss during some screen transitions. So that probably means there's some kind of sync issue. Neo Geo Sync can be weird, but it's mostly compatible with all the PVMs I've tried. However, the GSCART switch, it uh, looks like you have the latest version. Though one of those dip switches is uh, sync filtering, another is SMS sync regeneration. So I'll see if I could find a link to where the specs are for that so you'll know what the dips are. But I would try seeing if your GSCART fixes it, but I would also look into what your consoleized MVS is. Do you have one of those uh, ones that were from AliExpress that have far too high sync to be running into most of these devices? Um, you know, you would really want to look into what that is because most of the time, and I don't mean to be negative, but 99% of the time when somebody shows me a consoleized MVS and an issue they're having, it's because the circuitry inside it is the problem. That's one of the reasons why we pushed so hard to open source the Open MVS project, because we were hoping that people who make these would just use the design so you never have to worry about safety anymore. So unfortunately, it didn't catch on, even though it's completely free to use, at totally free to use, uh, and you still have a lot of companies making consoleized MVSs that have weird issues like this. So um, I would look into, if you want to privately or here, it's okay, you can DM me if you'd rather do it that way, but let me know what the consoleized MVS is, and that, that will be much more of a clue as to what you could do. Unfortunately, you need a scope to test these lines. That $30 scope that I talked about uh, last, last year or something like that, it's a, a great device to have for situations like this, but I would absolutely make sure that your consoleized MVS is working first and then kind of go back and see if, uh, you know, if you could use some kind of sync regeneration to fix it. But I'll leave a link to what the dip switches do. And, uh, you know, if you want to follow up and get more info, then I could see if I can get this working for you a little smoother. Next up, SuperHeku is currently building a PC with the purpose of capturing audio and video from retro consoles. And since this is their first project related to capturing footage, they still consider themselves a novice. They're using the video capture section of the website as a reference, and they plan to, to purchase a Datapath capture card and a Motu M4 audio interface for that setup. Since the main focus is to make the best possible captures from these devices, they're, they're wondering if there's a general consensus of what's considered archival footage in the context of retro consoles. From what they understood, this refers to capturing their console signals without altering them in any way, but there are other factors that need or are there other factors that need consideration as well, like the usage of RGB mods, stock versus high quality cables, recapped consoles, and so on. So I have a couple of different answers to this, and I'm going to try to keep this short because I could talk for hours about this. Um, my personal choice when using that exact setup uh, in uh, Windows versus Linux is going to come up in a second, but my personal choice is to record those pixel perfect in the original resolution in some kind of container that doesn't change the image. So um, 
F F V one. I forgot there, there was one that doesn't work with premiere, but it was a really great and small codec to use that doesn't change the image. Uh, Lagarith was one I've used for a while, but some people have an issue with that, but basically record your stuff using those guides, getting the phase set correctly and record them in the original resolution as pixel perfect as possible. The reason I choose to do that is because number one, you end up with a very small file and comparative to like a 1080p uncompressed or lossless, I guess is the better term to use, but still a way smaller file. But also on top of that, now you could manipulate that file any way you want, any time you want. If you have a as perfect as possible recording of these signals, then you could scale them to just 480p to 4k whatever and just make sure that you do the aspect ratio correction last so you do the integer scale up to whatever and then the uh, the last step is to do the horizontal stretching or smushing in order to get that in there but as long as you have the root capture correct you can do all of those things definitely take the time and when post-processing to do the aspect correction correction though that drives me crazy when i see video game people doing historical work and they they have all of the aspect ratios wrong and it just i don't know kind of i don't know why it drives me nuts but it definitely does probably because also it's very easy to do this to fix that stuff in post and you don't with the aspect ratio right you don't even have to get it perfect 90 percent good is fine but most people's are just way off so that that's from uh you know from that point of view are there any factors that need consideration games with multiple resolutions so there's plenty of games with title screens or start menu screens at one resolution and the rest of the game is at another so that would cause a, a lot of issues trying to get pixel perfect captures because the one if you set it for the main resolution every time you bring up the other resolutions it's going to look terrible so you have to consider that that's kind of one of the reasons why depending on what you're going for running it through something like the ossc or, or tink 5x is probably going to just be overall easier because you don't have to do any of that stuff um now are there factors that need consideration? Oh, one more is Linux versus Windows. Uh, unless you try to get Windows um, Windows 7 working, which is a massive pain, you're never going to get as good of an audio capture as, as you would have. Um, well, yeah, so it's Windows 7 and Linux is going to be the best ways to get audio captured. And Mac as well, but you're talking about building a PC, so that's why I can't bring it up there. So because of that, if you're doing Windows 10 or 11, you could do archival stuff and it's going to be awesome. And it's going to be with that Motu M4 better than 99% of the other solutions that you could do out there. But if you ever get into deep MD4A analysis, it might be a hair better to switch over to Linux. Now, um, there are a couple of people working on some very easy to use Linux tools for this exact purpose, but I don't think they're even in public beta yet. The goal would be that you boot your computer, either if you're a Linux person, you just run Linux on it, or even if you're a Windows person, you put that USB stick with Linux on it, boot your PC to that whenever you need to do archival captures, and then boot back into Windows for everything else. Now, the other stuff you were talking about, usage of RGB mods, stock versus high-quality third-party cables, recapped consoles. So I have opinions on that, and uh, I'll start with the ones that I feel very strongly about. Recapped consoles would only matter if you uh if there was a problem 
but you're not going to get an unfair advantage because if you're taking archival footage, having a nice newly recapped console would be way closer to what you would have gotten when this thing was brand new than something that's been sitting around for 30 years. Same thing with stock versus high quality third-party cables. Get the best quality cable you could possibly find because you're not doing video analysis on cables. You're doing it, analysis and archiving, you're doing it on the video games. So I would just get whatever the best cable possible is for you, you know, something well shielded because the intent isn't to test the cables. You just want to get the best signal on of it. Now, RGB mods versus uh, stock, that is a question that you're going to have to decide for yourself. And here's an example that'll leave your head spinning. Do you use an original two-chip SNES, two-chip, three-chip, a non-one-chip? Come at me, trolls, for saying two-chip. It's fine. But do you use that where it's blurry? Or do you go to a completely stock one-chip where you then get some ghosting. So it's way sharper, but you get some haloing and ghosting around the characters. Or do you mod any of those to get the best quality? That's up to you. What is the intent? Is the intent to get original footage from game consoles as good as possible? Or is it to analyze mods? Or is it to get an accurate of an experience? A good example, another good example is Sega Master System. Most US Sega Master Systems look like crap with tons of RAM noise and jail bars. And the moment you fix one thing, it, uh, it accentuates the awfulness of the other. So do you then just run it through a Sega Genesis instead? And then you just get a much clearer image. What's the goal? So I have no idea there. I do not have a strong opinion on... I have an opinion on asking the questions. Make sure you ask the questions, but your answers are all going to be the right answer. It just make sure that the intent matches your methods. Uh, so if you have any other questions about this stuff going forward, let me know. I do like talking about it. I somehow kept it under 10 minutes when I would normally talk for like 30 about capture. So hopefully I can put this into perspective better or at least pointed some better perspective your way. Let me know if you want any more details. And I can't promise that I won't ramble about it because I do, for whatever crazy reason, love this stuff. The dressing gown wanted to clarify their previous question about mixing signals together. So basically, why is it that you could take red, green, blue, and sync and smoosh it together on a composite video cable and have it look that messy compared to the signals all separated, the red, green, blue, and sync, but you could put sync on green for the RGSBs, and that doesn't have the same amount of interference. And the answer is, it's all still there. It's just only going to be on the green channel, which doesn't really show it as much. If you've noticed, whenever I show um, messy signals or whenever, uh, like, sync on composite uh, for, uh, for RGBS, when that sync is composite video as sync, not just a clean C-sync, I always show a blue screen to show the jail bars. And because that is where you will mostly see the interference because the frequencies and uh, that they run at. I'm oversimplifying just because I don't want to, I might've even gotten that last statement a little bit wrong. I just wanted to make sure I got the info out. Um, you, you are always adding noise when you mix signals together, always. It's just, where is it going to be the most noticeable? So I think that answered your question, but please let me know if I'm still missing it. Next up, Louis Fiat wants to know, since I always say never run video signals through a Y circuit or a Y cable, is it safe to do so through a VCR where you plug the composite video in and composite out? And the answer is absolutely yes, because it's the same thing as when you're using an unterminated 
RGB monitor. You don't have the same type of termination or it's automatic. So if you plug it in and there's no out connected, everything looks fine on your VCR. But if you do have the out connected, that works too. Um, there are some PVMs that also have that. And I believe a BVMs as well, where it's auto terminated, it'll auto sense that. So uh, you never have to worry about doing that with a VCR. And also, what does that mean in terms of lag introduced? Zero, absolutely zero, because all you're doing is passing that analog signal through. And when you run it through a PVM or run it through a VCR, there is zero latency introduced. I think Steve from RetroTech was going to show uh, converting RF to composite and to show that there's no latency there either when you're using a VCR. I don't know if you put that video out, or maybe you did, and I watched it and forgot about it. Sorry, Steve. But yeah, both great questions, but that's one of the many reasons why I often talk about using even a broken VCR that doesn't uh, play tapes anymore could often be a really good solution for a bunch of different things, uh, including converting RF to composite or just you know being able to record video while watch it at the same time like we, like we have been. But yeah, good questions. Couple of questions from Dustin Madison. First, what's my thoughts on playing light gun games on a mister on a flat panel? Um, obviously, you could use any kind of snack adapters to use original light guns on a mister on a CRT, but what about flat panels? Um, they're personally curious about the gun for IR. So am I. I've been interested in that project since JB and I first talked about it a long time ago, and I've been dying to try one out to see how it compares to the other solutions. Um, uh, there's also the Sinden light gun out. And I also recently demoed using a GunCon 3 and the sensors that you get from Greg from LaserBear. And my thoughts on that was, it is good. It is certainly better than not being able to play it at all. But there was, it wasn't the same as using an original light gun. So in the situation of you don't have a CRT, I think that one might be great. And it's pretty easily available. You get the sensors from Greg, but then you... Uh, you know, you just buy a GunCon 3 wherever you could find it. But I would really love to see somebody do a shootout of all three. So I will absolutely leave a link to the live stream I did, which is probably long and boring, so maybe skim through it. But I think the the better answer to you would be, I'd love to see somebody who really knows what they're talking about do a review of all three at the same time on the Mr and see what really is the best solution overall. Um, next, they'd also like to know my thoughts on my favorite 80s horror films. They can't help but always stick with uh, any cheesy 80s B-movies like Critters, Puppet Master, Chud 2, etc. Jeez, I don't know. I, I like so many movies. It's so hard to pick stuff like that out. And But I mean, I, I watched them all as a kid. Uh, they were all fun. They're, and I think the ones that really stick out for me were ones that had some kind of like personal connection like when i snuck out of bed one night as a little kid and and watched a movie with uh you know my parents i probably wasn't supposed to know that it was super gory but it was so over the top that even little six-year-old me didn't get nightmares because it was just so funny and crazy and so i don't know i don't really have an answer to that i like so many movies i like everything from you know, every kind of movie you could imagine. I, I like all of them. I do like horror movies, and I even like stuff that's cheesy. Like, remember Monster Squad? Uh, I don't know if you'd call that a horror movie or a kid's movie, but when I was a little kid, I watched that movie a hundred times. So I, I don't know. I, I don't... I, I just couldn't pick one. It's like saying pick one of your favorite movies. I mean, I'd have to pick ten. Like, I couldn't I couldn't even pick one. So, sorry. I massive fail for the second part of your question there. 
Next, Oliver Clare had a couple of questions about upcoming scalers. At no disrespect to you, Oliver, I'm only going to answer the questions about the things that I have hands-on access to uh, for all the reasons I already said. Hopefully, you're not offended by that. But uh, first up, when Firebrand X has some profiles ready for loading onto an SD card, will the RetroTINK 4K be able to automatically detect the console being used and boot up the appropriate profile? Mike had already talked about this. The short-term answer is no. It's something he's going to be looking into, but that also begs to ask questions that are definitely out of my uh, out of my league here. But what happens when you have two consoles that are 256 pixels wide? How would you be able to differentiate between them? So there's a bunch of questions that come up with stuff like this. Uh, but the more important part is it's not impossible. It's just not going to happen on launch date. At least that's the info I have today. You know, Mike, a week from now, he could stumble across something and then throw it in, or it could never happen. But I feel like that's just full transparency there. Next, how do users access and manage the Tink 4K's profiles? All you do is throw a bunch of them on an SD card, and the same SD card that's required when you power on the Tink 4K, which is awesome because the FrameMeister did this, but there was a limit to how many profiles you could load. Whereas in this one, you could load as many profiles as files are allowed in the FAT32 file system. So there's just basically no limit. Uh, you could name the profiles anything you want, SNES scan lines, SNES no scan lines. Same thing, this is a file system limitation, not a Tink 4K. Obviously, the shorter the name, the easier it will be. Uh, and that's that's it. You basically just take the SD card out, put them into a, uh, any kind of computer, dump your prof dump the FBX profiles on there, rename them, tweak them, whatever you want to do. Uh, that that's it. Um, and this is such a huge deal because the Tink 5X didn't have any ability to back up or restore profiles, so you have to do it manually. Which I'm not throwing shade at Mike, right? You know, you get the step by step working through these, and the OSSC you could do that, but then you'd have to flash it every time. And I'm obviously not throwing shade to Marcus. Marcus's OSSC was really just changed the entire game for retro. So no shade thrown, but it just it is kind of a pain to load those up, and there was a limit to how many you could have. So this finally solves all that. You dump all the FBX profiles onto an SD card. Card, um, add them, tweak them, change them, do whatever you want on the Tink itself, and then you could put them back into your computer to back up, restore, or share them. So yeah, that one's great. Um, and also, you had asked about connecting uh, other scalers through these new modern scalers, and that might not work for a whole bunch of reasons, and that wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be necessarily related to these scalers. I've always kind of had trouble putting a scaler into a scaler. One of the things that always uh, drove me nuts was the Oppo Blu-ray player. I knew it was going to be really laggy, but I just wanted to see what it would be like to put certain things through it, and it just very often wouldn't work. Uh, whether it's the OSSC or a DVDO scaler for VHS stuff, the only thing that did work was um, I was able to put the Tink 5X through it, but there were some scenarios where it... it wasn't the perfect thing. So my speculation, I haven't done it with the Tink 4K, but my speculation is that scaler to scaler, I, I would I would just walk into that knowing you're probably going to have issues. The only exception to that would be HDMI mods for consoles should all work flawlessly through all modern, or, you know, upcoming scalers. That is a guess and speculation, but I mean... Why, why wouldn't they, right? So uh, that should be fine. Uh, you just might have to run them in their pre-scaled resolutions. So like the high-def NES, I think you're stuck 
scaling the 720p version of that or the 480p version because I don't think it could output 240p. But that would be the only limitation that I could guess. But I don't, once again, those are all just guesses. For all I know, they're all designed to work with each other. They're going to be perfect. I don't, I don't know, but um, I, I just think it's good, especially for somebody like yourself that has a very cool but complicated setup. You might want to just plan on the worst case scenario and hope that that they could work together. But once again, that's all the that last part's guessing. The profile stuff is definitely a fact, though, because I've already been doing that for a while, and it's it's so smooth to be able to do it that way. Well, that's it for this week. As always, if you have any questions whatsoever, please just ask wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post, because the way the services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an older post. Uh, plus, I just like scrolling through in real time and reading them like we were hanging out somewhere together, just like I did today. And today, the questions were only on Patreon, but wherever you support is cool. It just there's a lot more supporters on that platform, which is why you mostly see questions from there. There's no favorites. I, I love and appreciate all of you equally. So thank you all very much. Uh, and I do really love doing these. And I, hopefully I was able to, even though there was a bunch more questions this week, hopefully it still flowed a little smooth. And I try to keep these things positive. I try to keep everything I do positive. I like being the the happy, jolly, drunk Santa dude. But like, um, I, you know, sometimes life isn't like that. So I try to address things as respectfully as I can. And I'm not the best at it, but I, I do try. And it still ends up upsetting tons of people whenever I do. So if you're pissed at me, just know that I'm trying my best. So anyway, see you next week.